That weekend, I'm like, okay, what was the deal with the song? She says, Mama, it was such a hard day. It had been such a hard week. I was feeling so undervalued and lacking worth. And I just needed to remember what it felt like when we were together and we sang that song. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Welcome to the Raising Young Children in Wake County podcast, brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, former school psychologist, currently a child psychologist, and a former parent of a child in Project's demonstration preschool. I also recently served as the board chair and am currently still serving on the Project Enlightenment Foundation as a board member. The goal of this podcast is to expand services to the young children in Wake County through parent education. In this 10-episode podcast series, we will include interviews with experts in early childhood education, psychology, and pediatrics to discuss topics including the importance of play, managing toddler behavior, language and motor development, kindergarten readiness, how to set up routines, and parent mental wellness. Today, we are going to be talking about how children learn through play with none other than Kim Hughes. How are you doing, Kim? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank Honored you so and much. delighted. Thank oh, you. I'm excited. So let me first introduce Kim for anyone who does not know her. Kim is a former North Carolina Teacher of the Year and now conducts local, state, and national level presentations, mentors, administrations, coaches, teachers, assists schools and agencies and programs in implementing conscious discipline to fidelity school-wide. In 2011, she began Conscious Connections an educational firm that helps teachers, school administrators, child care providers, and parents harness positive discipline techniques and cutting-edge early childhood research to create rewarding relationships and positive learning environments for children from birth through fifth grade. My favorite ages. Yay! Me too. Kim has also worked with PBS on both Sesame Street and Danger Ranger as a curriculum developer and educational specialist and as a consultant for Teaching Strategies Incorporated. She lives in Wake Forest with her husband, Scott, and their two dogs, Stella and Katie. Welcome. Thank, Thank you so you. much for joining us. So excited to be here. Okay. We are going to dive into one of my favorite topics that is so overlooked when we talk about play, and that is busting the myth that you can't play with babies. And so, um, as you and I both know, you can. Uh-huh. So walk us through how early you can actually start playing with young children and what parents can do. Great question. So I believe that play starts from the moment we enter this world. Um, first of all, what a great opportunity for families, parents, those who care about young children to see the world through their lens and to see it from the moment that they're born. You know, play begins, uh, what we know about our youngest is that they recognize their mama's voice almost immediately. So if we're able to sing songs and read books and just talk and cuddle and soothe with them in very playful, joyful ways, children already can feel our intention, and we begin to develop those moments that lead to secure attachment. Um, what we also know is that play is the child's job. And, you know, it's been said, I think it was Plato that said something like, we can learn more about uh, a child in an hour of play than a year of conversation. So from the time that we first get to know our little one and look into their eyes and learn from them and with them, it's a lot of observing. Um, that's what we're going to hear this theme through our time together, that 
It's too often uh, adults take over play for children, but when we get a chance to just take a deep breath and be present and get to really watch and know them, then we can build on that moment rather than take it over. So my idea is always about sustaining rather than interrupting play. Uh, what can we do with our youngest kids? Um, we mentioned singing, right, and reading books. But even just um, taking your child's hands and having them pat and talk to them, taking their little legs and moving them like a bicycle and explaining what's happening. Um, what we know at young ages, kids see uh, black and white. So providing materials that we know that they can see so they learn to track. So we're working with them on some of those um, developmental skills, but we're having so much fun right? Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the things. And also understanding that for our youngest, our babies, they learn about the world in very unexpected ways. So it's usually by accident, right? Mm -hmm. You put something near me and all of a sudden I flail and I hit and it makes a noise and I like it and I want to hear it again. So creating the other big places and creating an environment with not so many store-bought materials, it's with you, Right? One of my big things is from the moment that a child is born, I want them to know the laptop is sitting on their mama's lap. And the FaceTime is having that relationship where we look into each other's eyes and you get that beautiful moment, that agafi love that you're like, oh. And that's what play brings to all of us, a sense of joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that reminds me in my DIR floor time training ah. that the parent is the toy. Yes. And the parent is the one in those early ages that you you are able to offer that space and that container mm -hmm. and those interactions to strengthen attachment. And I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later. But what you said reminds me of in my training, I, even I as a child psychologist, had to learn to wait and pause and observe and literally had to sit on my hands yeah. when getting trained in waiting for the child to figure something out or yes. waiting for the child to request and slowing things down um, and figuring out your baby's rhythm and your rhythm. I just love all those suggestions because that's what we're doing in those really yeah, early we, ages. We push kids through phases and through stages. And I can remember as a young mother, I had my kids super young, and now I'm a gammy of two and soon to be four. So I have a chance to relive that again mm -hmm. and to slow it down and to observe. Um, but we're always wishing them through, oh, they're crawling. When are they going to walk? Mm -hmm. You know, and even reminding my daughter-in-law that having my now 15-month-old granddaughter, Lenny, Make sure she goes through that crawling phase. Don't push her to walk right. before she's ready because what we know is that later physical development is going to lag if we don't make sure that they go through those developmental stages in very playful, uh, interactive, genuine ways. Right. And mm -hmm. if you want to hear more about the reasons behind that motor development, go listen to the interview I did with Rose Langston, occupational therapist. We talk all about the importance of going through motor milestones the way that we're supposed to good. in human development. Good. I'll have to catch that mm -hmm. one. It sounds like a good one. Yeah. So speaking of motor milestones and skills, as children begin to gain more motor skills and language skills, because of course, as infants, you know, you said we are the ones that are clapping their hands or moving their feet. Um, how does this expand their play when they get these skills to move around and say things? Oh, it's like my favorite thing when that happens. <laughs> so uh, in terms of language development, um, what we know is, first of all, the child goes from solely 
counting on us to provide those playful interactions to being more independent. And if we've taken that time to watch and we're willing to build on our child's interests, they start to let us know what they want and need. Mm -hmm. So they move to this place where they're not always counting on that adult and they're being able to start believing in themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And we have to follow their lead. So um, I, of course, think about Lenny and she started walking at 12 months Um, And it's so funny because she started talking around the same time and using very deliberate sounds that represent certain things. Uh, Duh was her dog cooey. Uh, Buh, long buh is ball. Mm -hmm. And so she would literally, now that she can motor, instead of just pointing, she can go and get the ball Mm -hmm. and bring it to you. And at first she wanted us to throw it and she would run after it. Now she picks it up. She throws it herself in a couple of months' time, and she kicks it. And I have to say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because her daddy is a soccer player. You know, so already she's doing those kinds of things. But it is once again giving kids the time and the space uh, so that they can build on those developing skills. Mm -hmm. And this also just reminds me, as a a play therapist, um, one of my favorite parts of being a play therapist is actually not having a plan for my sessions. And the reason is, I mean, I have my goals and I have the things in my mind that I'm thinking of when I'm working with young children, but the way that I teach those is always by noticing what the child gravitates towards in the playroom. I don't have an agenda. My agenda is to follow them and then it's that's the art of the play is how can I scaffold and weave in a teachable moment into this interest in this play? And that's what um, is so powerful about observing and about waiting, like for Lenny to, you know, be able to navigate the room and what's going to happen next, right? And it's so fun, even, you know, once again, uh, what we introduce to the environment when we know that those are kids' loves, right? Right. It's a ball. You know, you don't need those gadgets to make all those sounds. I mean, sometimes I I do a lot of coaching in classrooms, um, working with caregivers that work with our youngest, Mm -hmm. so kids from six weeks all the way up. And I walk into some of these settings and, like, I'll touch something and it'll make a noise and I'll be terrified. Like, what was that? (laughs) where what kids really need are just really basic things. Right. Um, You know, like nothing like opening a cabinet and taking out some pots and pans, Mm -hmm. right? And then with that language, we want to make sure that we honor something called serve and return. So that's that following that child's lead in terms of what they're doing, but also through that language. So when they make that first, ooh, us at that very young age, echoing back, ooh, Right. And having that give and take and that social reciprocity, but also in that art of noticing and observing, knowing that moment when the match we just had is now a mismatch. And instead of trying to convince the child that you want to go back to what they just did, allowing them to choose a new path to go down. Mm, Can you tell us more? Give us an example of the match and the mismatch. Sure. So um, one of the things that I see a lot when I go in to coach um, infant providers is that instead of just letting kids naturally explore an environment, um, they try to convince the child that they have a better plan. So let's say that a child is upset, and instead of picking them up and soothing them and holding them chest to chest and taking some deep diaphragmatic breaths, they'll try to take something and they'll jiggle it. Look at this, look at this, look at this. You're okay, Mm -hmm. you're okay, you're okay. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the child's not okay. 
if they're experiencing some kind of whimpering or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the match would be to meet the child where they are in that moment. Um, The other way that we look at a match is understanding that our youngest have have a skill that we want to develop called joint attention. Mm -hmm. And by about 12 months of age, we want to make sure that we respect the fact that when a child turns away, we can be playing and a child turns away and looks at something else that that can become part of the play. Right. And that's a match. So mm-hmm. if my uh, 12-month-old looks at a light and all of a sudden I want to tie that light in and look at the child is one point of the triangle, the light is the second, and I'm the third, and allow them to naturally come back and make eye contact rather than convincing them to continue with the game would be the mismatch. Right. The match would be meeting the child where they are, understanding you're developing joint attention, tying that light into the play experience and then moving forward. So following their lead Absolutely. instead of an adult directed. Yeah. Any any type of activity that's more adult directed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that child initiated play mm-hmm. is always so much more meaningful for kids mm-hmm. because they have ownership in where it goes. It is. And so this is, of course, you know, any of us working in early childhood education get on our soapbox about adult directed things because there's a time and a place mm-hmm. for that and schooling Great. later on. But at birth through kindergarten, we want to know what they're interested in. We want to know what they gravitate towards because that's where the engagement and the the magic, the learning will happen. The magic, mm-hmm. right? That's what we're talking about, those magical, joyful moments. Right. And playful learning is embedded in those mm-hmm. joyful experiences. Mm-hmm. So and you absolutely. don't have to create very much. Mm-mm. You just follow. And that's the good news. That's the good news for so many parents who maybe don't have, you know, all all the gadgets or all the, you know, the money to buy the things. You don't have to buy the things. You don't. And especially this time of year, mm-hmm. I want people to understand yeah. that your presence mm-hmm. is the best present I that we can offer to our children. So just be there for them mm-hmm. and and match their ideas and where they want to go with things rather than taking over. Right. Yeah. One quick story before we oh, move good. on is um, our, you know, the story of of, you know, thinking about just using what you have in your house. Um, During COVID, you know, my boys um, were together a lot. (laughs) And there were a lot of things being delivered to the house in cardboard boxes during COVID. So one day, um, we had this massive box that both of my boys could fit in at the same time. And, um, and I was like, what in the world are you all doing? Because they were, they were on the porch, and they were ringing the doorbell, and one was in a box. And, one of them, they were like, we're playing Amazon Delivery Man <laughs> because they were copying what had been happening over and over as we were ordering things online. But one was shipping his brother to Kansas, which is where the cousins live. <laughs> we're playing Amazon Delivery Man and I'm going to ship him to Kansas to visit the cousins because we couldn't see each other. And it was this beautiful, like, you know, imitation of real life, but mm. also noticing what they were missing because they missed their cousins. We couldn't fly anywhere. We couldn't, you know, see each other. And so um, it was a beautiful thing that they just came up with based on the cardboard box. But I didn't direct any of that. Yeah. And those are the best experiences right? when kids come up with something out of nothing. Right. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, so let's um, shift into talking about 
um, as kids are getting a little older and they're um, we're really want to, wanting to enrich these attachment experiences and this this social communication that's developing. Conscious discipline, you know, has something called an I love you ritual yeah. that is um, the cornerstone of so many of these connections. And um, tell me more about what that is, why it's so important and where parents can go to learn more of these. Okay, so um, I Love You rituals are uh, playful activities that Dr. Becky Bailey, who is the brilliance behind and the founder of Conscious Discipline, um, one of my sheroes, um, she's come up with these absolutely fabulous ways for us to build meaningful relationships with those that we care about. And what's interesting about I Love You rituals is that they were first developed for young children. But what we know is that when you have those connections and you learn about um, the impact on the brain and on the body when we have those authentic connections, you seek them out for the rest of your life. So it's really um, an opportunity for two people to join together, and they experience what I like to call a biochemical cocktail that the brain releases, um, which Dr. Bailey calls joy juice. Mm-hmm. Now, what joy juice is, is it takes some hormones and some neotransmitters, and it activates those um, entities into the brain. Um, what we know when we have authentic connection, um, little kids call it a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, and it's when you meet somebody for the first time and you're like, ooh, I'd love to get to know them. Right. But for little kids' term, it's like, oh, this person gets me. Mm-hmm. And what we know is we get a hit of oxytocin, right. which promotes trust, uh, some dopamine, which says the brain tells the brain, yeehaw, pay mm-hmm. attention. This is important because it feeds into the reward system. It gives us a little bit of a hit of endorphins, mm-hmm. which bring us pleasure, lets go of pain. Um, And it really optimizes the brain uh, for true connection and building relationships that matter. So what would some of these look like? So uh, Dr. Bailey actually has a book. It's called I Love You Rituals. It's available on the ConsciousDiscipline.com website or through Amazon. And I think she has like 75 different activities. She's taken some of the old nursery rhymes that weren't always so pleasant. (laughs) Um, You know, like we talk about poor Humpty Dumpty. I I mean, he never had a chance. He was a goner (laughs) from the time he hit that wall. And Dr. Bailey uh, adds some gender-friendly kinds of terms. So it's all the queen's horses and all the king's men could put Humpty together again. But we experience these with kids with um, four components, which are eye contact, And it's not creepy eye contact. It's loving, meaningful, I'm present, I'm here for you. Um, It's touch. And what we talk about is I love you rituals allow us to experience that sense of touch, and it's the one sense we must all have Mm -hmm. or we will perish. And we know that from some of the sad stories in orphanages and whatnot. But we want to make sure that we give children the, the greatest advantage in life. So it's that eye contact. It's that touch. And even in COVID, we realized when we couldn't have, we had that physical distancing, that emotional touch Mm -hmm. through these I love you rituals. There was the eye contact, right? Because we're masked, but we still had eyes Mm -hmm. and eyes are the windows to the soul. We had that that emotional um, touch. We were present and that's part of these I love you rituals and it's playful and fun. Mm -hmm. So for somebody like Lenny, who is now 15 months, she and I will do something like Twinkle, twinkle, little star, what a wonderful Lenny you are with bright eyes and nice round cheeks. A talented Lenny from head to feet. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, what a wonderful Lenny you are. And so even though I'm her gammy and I live in North Carolina and she's in Nebraska, she hears my voice and automatically she starts twinkling her little fingers. Mm -hmm. And then her big sister, Luca, 
who's six, you make it a little more age appropriate. So it is some crossing the midline and it's like bread and butter, blackberry jam. Say, I love you as fast as you can. I love you. We both say it. And then I'll say, how should we do it next? And she'll go, slow. So I'll go, as slow as we can. And then we both go, I love you. Mm -hmm. Right? But it's those magical moments that sustain a child for the rest of their life. Yes. And I'm just going to tell you a super quick story about the power. So uh, I have two adult children now. And my youngest, Lauren, she lived in L.A. for a while. And she had a job, think a devil wears Prada. Mm-hmm. All right. And her boss was uh, equivalent to Meryl Streep. And my daughter was Anne Hathaway. Okay. So it was a rather thankless posi- position and um, whatnot. But it's so interesting how in those moments of upset, and that's what Dr. Bailey says, that I love you rituals bond us. So in the toughest moments, you have that memory to draw on. So when Lauren was uh, from a very young child, she did not want to wake up. And so her dad was pretty much just sprayer with water. And I was like, no, we're not going (laughs) to raise children that way here. And so we did this little I love you ritual that at the time I didn't know that it was an actual I love you ritual. It had eye contact, touch, presence, and playfulness. And it went something like this. Who's the kindest girl I know? And I would just like stroke her hair and she would kind of open her eyes. And I would say, little Lauren Lou. And then I would say, who's the wisest girl I know? And i touch her nose and maybe her cheeks. And then as she woke up, she would go, little Lauren Lou. <laughs> so fast forward, you know what she's doing these days. I'm at Harris Teeter in the cereal aisle of all places, right? <laughs> and I get a call from my child who's on the West Coast. Like when you get that call, I don't care where you are. Right. If you can answer it, you answer it. So I'm like, hey, Lolo, what's up? And she says, sing me the song. <laughs> I said, Lolo, um, Matt Harris Teeter in the middle of the cereal aisle. And she's, sing me the song. So I'm like looking around. Of course, they have all these moms and kids around me. And I start singing, who's the kindest girl I know, little Lauren Lou. And then I hear a couple verses. And then she goes, thanks. Hangs up. <laughs> that weekend, I'm like, okay, what was the deal with the song? She says, mama, it was such a hard day. It had been such a hard week. I was feeling so undervalued Mm -hmm. and lacking worth. And I just needed to remember what it felt like when we were together and we sang that song. Mm. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're crying crying in the studio over here. It's one of my favorite, favorite stories about the power of I Love You rituals. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Oh, my goodness. And here's, I'm just going to give you another. I talked about Dr. Bailey's book. The other one I've read recently, and Emily, you mentioned that you had read it too. Huge fan of Dan Siegel and um, and Tina. I I always get it messed up. Payne Bryson. I Mm -hmm. kind of want to call her Bryson Payne, but it's Payne Bryson. Mm -hmm. They wrote this great book called um, The Power of Showing Up. And it really talks about how... We want to be present and show up for our children because what we know is that part of our jobs as parents um, in those playful moments, it's for kids to experience safety. And it's not just, we're not talking about covering up the outlets. Um, We're talking about that felt sense of emotional Mm -hmm. safety. Kids want to be seen, right? And this book and Dr. Bailey and Consciousness, when we talk about kids want to be seen, not judged. They want you to know how they look at the world, what they value. And we discover how to do that in those playful moments. They want to be soothed. And what we know is that if at very young ages we teach kids how to soothe themselves, right, through right. those deep breaths and through us being there and showing up in the matter moments that matter the most and when, as quickly as we can when life doesn't go the way we expect, 
kids begin to trust us and trust themselves. So they're able to soothe themselves and become have that secure attachment mm-hmm. within themselves and within um, our relationship so that they can be the person and the future mama or papa right. that we want them to be. Right. So it's just a great book that I really loved yeah. reading. And I'm just thinking about your daughter in that moment, you know, that's a perfect example of you couldn't do anything else to solve that, right? She actually sounded like she couldn't do anything to solve it. It just was a a hard situation that she was in, but that is what she needed in that moment. Um, And this reminds me of just being a young mother and that feeling. I think every mom can relate to this of when you're a young mother and you're tired, and your your and your body is like at the mercy of keeping something else other than you alive. You want your mom, maybe for the first time since you were a child, and it's that feeling of you don't really need anything. I mean, yes, probably you want a nap, but you just need <laughs> you just want that feeling of your co-regulator at yeah, that moment. And, absolutely, and that's what that reminded reminded me of. So this leads us into my next question, which you basically answered. But so why is learning through play better than just telling the young child what to do? Well, and you know what I want? Because play is so experiential. Right. I mean, I'm that's gonna, why right, for your daughter right, to have right. that moment. Exactly. And so I want us to even to think back and listeners to think back. Like when you were young and you think back on your most cherished moments, what were you doing? Right. You were playing. And so a lot of times I will say to people, just close your eyes and remember that moment that brought you such joy. Where were you? And for me, it was outside. I love being outside. And it was me being creative. And it was forging the woods and then figuring out where I was going to build a fort and figuring out how to find the materials and then finding a play buddy who also loved to construct things. You know, we never really used the things we constructed. It was more about the process. And isn't that true for kids? And Mm -hmm. that's why play is so beautiful because it's process-driven if we let it be. And when children can experience and we help them learn to be curious and to wonder, I do really believe that when we instill curiosity in kids, they're never bored, Mm -hmm. right? And if we allow children to have those playful experiences, which we get by doing, not by having somebody tell us, you know, there's nothing like it. You don't learn red by somebody just saying, I'm currently wearing a red sweater, Right. Well, if we want kids to internalize it, it's giving them red things to sort. It's adding red food coloring uh, to water and then having them paint, you know, like the sidewalk mm-hmm. so that they're able. And then maybe adding another primary color and they explore and realize, oh, did you know that red and blue make purple? And it's that art of discovery. It's that moment mm-hmm. of curiosity come to life. And it's that experience for kids that opens up their world to possibilities. Mm-hmm. And they have to have the space to do mm-hmm. that. Yes, the physical space, but also the time. And that goes back to the observation, the space for them to have that curiosity. And it is so hard. It's the figurative sitting on your hands as the grown up. Let them be messy. Let them have something that's broken. And you watch how they problem solve that. Um, that's where all the good stuff is. Absolutely. And maybe give them cues and clues so they can be successful. Yeah. Because there's that fine line right before Mm -hmm. you start seeing frustration. Mm -hmm. So I was in a classroom yesterday and uh, kids were working with puzzles. And, you know, the and I'm there modeling for them about effective developmentally appropriate interactions with children. And the one teacher came over and she just put the piece. The kid was frustrated and put the piece in. 
And I just said, let's try it again. And so I just kind of showed the colors and where they were and look at the shapes. This is a curvy line. This is a straight line. Where do you think it might fit best? And I said, I think you're close. <gasps> let's take a deep breath. <sighs> look at you. You're getting, you, got, you did it. You found just the right spot all by yourself. Right, and so it is those little nuances of giving mm-hmm. them that time, but also those social cues and clues that are give them a context mm-hmm. for for that success. Yes. So any parents listening who have trouble, like I did as a young parent, not having a job while your child is playing, just what Kim said is like think of yourself self as the sportscaster and you're uh-huh. the play by play, and that's your job is to observe and to comment and to encourage but not to reach in and do four mm-hmm. um, because that's what they're they're learning that. They're doing it. They're figuring it out in the play. And I love your idea about sitting on your hands because <laughs> literally if you do that, the other little trick that I have to use sometimes is counting, uh-huh. right? Because sometimes, because I have to say, like I go back to I was always a fixer and I've learned as I've gotten older just to allow kids to use the skills you gave them and trust that mm-hmm. they'll be able to figure it out with your support and guidance. But it's that counting. And sometimes it's like Mississippi, one 1,000 or one Mississippi, two Mississippi. And then when I get to three, now I can give them an idea. So I don't jump in before their little brain might be able to solve it for themselves. Right. Because you don't want them to miss that moment. Right. Because that is literally when their brain just made a connection and connected. That neurotransmitter just happened. Yeah. And just connected in their brain. They need that space in that time. Yeah, exactly. So let's transition into talking about when we've got more than one kid in the mix. So uh-huh. kids are starting to play together. So how do we teach taking turns and sharing and empathy through play? Because there's so much power in the when young children get together that is absolutely the foreshadowing of skills for the rest of their life. Yeah, and I love the fact that how do we teach because they are not skills that develop (laughs) just naturally. Right. And so I think as parents and as adults, we have to remember that we always want to teach the behavior we want to see, and we have to model the behavior we want kids to learn. So I believe that turn-taking happens before sharing can ever really occur. Right. For me, sharing is a choice. Turn-taking is a skill we develop, so we learn that we have that social reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So I always love to start turn-taking with a social story, like the why, so kids can understand that turn-taking is so that we give other people a chance to um, explore the same thing we did or bring the same, have the same sense of uh, laughter or mm-hmm. fun. or So it's that give and take. So it's, and there's a lot of great social stories that mm-hmm. you can find online. Um, but once they understand the why and you continue to explore that social story, you know, what we know is that some people say it can take 200 to 300 times in context for kids to learn a new skill. And so it's giving them that time and space. But that social story, mm-hmm. um, it needs to live within the context of the environment um, of the home so you can go back to it mm-hmm. as you need to. Um, and it's sharing that with all the siblings. So we're all right. on the same page. And it's moving away from you're the older one. It's your job to teach your brother how to take turns. It's really not their job. It really is something that is 
almost like this benefit of being an older sibling that you're able to guide and support them and allow them to experience it mm-hmm. so that it is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. Um, because ta- turning taking turns is something as easy as my turn, your turn, right? And so uh, it can be, first of all, it might have to take each of my kids and separately play a game with a ball where you roll it back and forth or you throw it back and forth. My turn, mm-hmm. right? And I catch it. Mm-hmm. Your turn and you catch it. So you're having that give and take and they can experience that. Um, it can be also turn-taking conversations. How many times we know at dinner time and one kid like <laughs> takes the entire time, right, to talk about high and low of the day. Right. So it really is adding structure to that experience. You're going to have the first turn mm-hmm. and then your brother will have the second turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we're bringing language to the experience. I think that's really helpful. Um, I also think that turn-taking, uh, playing board games mm-hmm. is another really good way for them to experience that. Sharing, um, I think, is hard. It's really, really hard. And it's not only hard for little kids, it's hard for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, Emily, I'm digging those earrings. Can <laughs> can you share them with me right now? Right. Because right? that would be me deciding that I can do without them for the rest of the day. Right. And I think, too, because we do this thing where as soon as somebody wants something, we want the other child to share it immediately. And that other child might have just gotten it. So I think sharing happens when kids trust and they have that relationship that they know that the adult is going to give them time to explore something, um, that there's going to be that reciprocity. Um, A lot of times you might even add that structure of taking turns with timers so then we're able to share the materials. I think that can be super helpful. Um, And the other thing is that we have to coach them. Yeah. So in that moment, um, so once again, yesterday, I just love the fact I'm in classrooms all the time. So you have these great examples. There are these two very, very young three-year-old, both females, both have been uh, experienced some pretty significant trauma. And so they are in the housekeeping area and they have a dish, a sink full of dishes. Well, the one, and it was Iris and Linda. So Iris is kind of hoarding all the dishes in the sink, you know, what would be our nightmare, right? To have a sink full of dishes. But man, I'll tell you, Iris was all about it in that moment. She, The more dishes, the better in that sink. Uh, but Linda wanted this one purple cup. And so she kept on, She, she. I came over as she was grabbing it and running away with it. And so I had to bring her back over, right? And say to her, oops, you forgot in this classroom we ask before we take something. Mm-hmm. And then she just looked at me. I said, it's hard. You were hoping that you could just take what you wanted. And you can get what you want if we use our words and ask. Sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no, and we'll figure it out. I said, it's going to look like this. And so I said, Iris, and I put out my hand, and I touched. I said, Iris, can I have one of those purple cups? And she looked at me, and she smiled, and she gave me the purple cup. And so I looked at Linda. I said, you want to try it? She put the cup back in and she put her hand out and she said, Iris, can I have the cup piece? And Iris looks at her. She looks at me. She looks at her. And I said, you can say yes, or you can say not now, maybe later. And I said, I know that you, these, you're playing with these right now. And she looks at Linda and she said, sure, and gives her the purple cup. So it is that moment Mm -hmm. of us, once again, modeling the behavior we want to see, but we have to intentionally teach and set up that experience. And then reinforce with Iris. And this is that emotion piece, right? right? So it is, oh, Iris, look. And and drawing attention to, to Linda's face. See her face? 
her feelings changed. When she first came over, her face looked like this. And then when I told her to come back over, her face looked like this, kind of with a frowny. She was worried that you were not going to say yes. Mm -hmm. But when you said yes, her feelings changed, and she's a big smile. So looking at teaching those emotions in those playful moments, those direct experiences, and like you said, I love that analogy of being a broadcaster, Mm -hmm. right? And just broadcasting what's happening, Mm -hmm. um, making sure you incorporate books and letting kids once again, I'm a huge fan of bibliotherapy. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the greatest things. Um, You know, there's nothing like sometimes I'm Bombaloo, you know, where it was just written by Rachel uh, Vale and... uh, Katie Honors is a really normal kid most of the time until her brother knocks down her building, (laughs) right? And she told him no. And it's just such a beautiful book where you can like look at what happens when the world doesn't go our way and we Mm -hmm. lose it. And we have these moments where you can see her facial experiences change before she completely goes bombaloo. And having kids become aware of what they look like when they're having those strong, big feelings and how other people look can be really helpful. Yeah, and I just want to take a second to point out the difference between what you just explained with the two girls in the kitchen center compared to, oh, Iris, just give Linda the cup. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. So probably no learning would have happened. That was a, that would be an adult directed command. Mm -hmm. None of that you know, juicy social emotional learning would have happened. Such a good point. And I think too, so often parents and adults in general, they just want kids to be nice. Right. And they think giving in, you know, just is just nice. give it is nice. And instead, what a life skill to learn negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. And to learn how to ask. But also if she would have said no in that moment, helping Linda learn how to deal with disappointment. Mm-hmm you know, to just welcome it and say that life is filled with disappointments. So you have some choices. You can wait till she's finished. You can find another one that looks just like it. Or you can figure out another cup to use. But I'm here. You can trust me that I'm going to be here to guide you and support you and unconditionally love you in this moment if it goes your way or not. That's so beautiful. We're crying again over here. (laughs) Um, Okay, so... What about, we mentioned this earlier, and I think that um, talk, when we talk about play that is obviously really child-directed and we follow their ideas and we give them space, things are going to get messy. Mm-hmm. And I work with lots of parents who were likely raised by a parent who told them not to get messy because mm-hmm. a lot of these things are some gener- generational patterns that filter down. So let's talk a little bit about the benefits of messy play, but also the feelings that parents have with messy play and how we can check ourselves on that. Yeah, great questions. Um, So first of all, great analogy of what messy play is. Um, And it's really scary because a lot of times we can't predict what's going to happen. And so many of us as adults want to control play rather than uh, join in or observe play, right? And so, uh, first of all, let's talk about the benefits because mm-hmm. once I think adults understand the benefits, then maybe they're more likely to take the risk It'll and allow worth it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, oh my gosh, first of all, messy play is so open-ended, right? It's such an opportunity for kids to be creative, to explore materials in ways that often we've never thought about, 
um, to be able to take uh, an open-ended material but make it their own. Right. And so once we know what kinds of messy play that kids really like, then we can add more into their repertoire by adding more materials. So it is opening up the possibility of being creative. Um, with that comes language. With that comes problem solving. What is? So messy play allows kids to really tap into all five domains of learning. So there's physical at you know, there's physical benefits. Um, I'm developing gross motor and fine motor skills. Um, definitely language and communication. If you are that uh, broadcast journalist and you are having that um, that parallel talk as your child is creating things, instead of judging, noticing, oh, you took your finger and you made a big circle. Now you went up and down. So, or just sitting back, more importantly, and just letting it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what we know is that social and emotional, because it has usually, especially with siblings, there's mm-hmm. that give and take, social reciprocity, dealing with those big feelings we just talked about. It is really looking at cognitive skills, um, because a lot of times kids will not show you what they know in very directive ways. I've seen kids all of a sudden, for the first time ever, um, I'm thinking about uh, taking shaving cream. So uh, one of my kids loved shaving cream at home. And sometimes I had to add structure, like, uh, you know, like a big uh, cookie sheet. This is where you have to to be messy or put out big tablecloth and it's going to stay on the tablecloth. But as kids, you know, I thought they were going to keep it in this little like two by two, you know, kind of constraint. (laughs) But no, it became big and open. And I can remember that Justin, the first time he ever wrote his name was in shaving cream. He wouldn't write it with a piece of paper. Right. And it was that opportunity to be able to make sense of the Mm -hmm. world in a way that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I can remember uh, um, I was lucky enough to work at Project Enlightenment for years and years. And I really always met parents where they were. And I can understand that sometimes it's really hard. I've had parents that say, I don't want him to play in the sand table. I spend so much time on his hair. I don't want to have to redo it every night. But I knew he loved sand. And Mm -hmm. so what I would say, so the problem is the sand in his hair. Can we think of another solution? Yeah, I guess. Well, what about if all the cool kids wear shower caps when we play in the sand? <laughs> so I went to like a hotel, got them to donate a ton of shower caps, and the kids would keep their shower caps in their cubby so that when they went to play in the sand that year, they all wore a shower cap. <laughs> you know, so just being real creative. Or a parent comes in and we have a relationship, and they said, you know, we're having we're having pictures after school today. I know play is the work of children. I know kids get messy here. Um, I really need her to be neat and crisp. And I'll be like, you know what? Can I throw in some other clothes and we'll change her before you pick her up? And the parents are like, yeah, that would be great. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there is just nothing like kids creating the joy of learning for themselves. Mm-hmm. So it is the process rather than the product, mm-hmm. right? And the difference between kids creating those moments for themselves versus us structuring it so it goes our way it takes away from that joyful learning. So what advice would you have for parents who kind of get that urge in their gut to put some boundaries and parameters on messy play or sensory exploration that they know in their mind is so valuable, but they're having some, you know, deeper gut feelings. I always remind parents, if you feel it in your gut, it's probably an old memory Mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with what's going on right now. That's why it's probably that inner child in you that is uncomfortable with Mm -hmm. this. So I guess for me at always, when you get those gut feelings that go back to those moments, 
um, that we live, but we want our children to live a different life. Mm-hmm. You know, we do tend to parent the way we were parented, right? Unless we choose to do it differently. So taking that deep breath, and and I always tell parents to say, "What if? What are the possibilities? What could happen differently for my child if I allow them to have this moment?" And then you know, gear them up. If you're like worried about them getting messy or getting it, <laughs> then like put smocks on them. You know, yeah. if you know, I got to say, my grandgirls. It cracks me up. Messy play. They just take off their clothes. I mean, it just cracks me right up because my daughter-in-law is just really, um, really good about messy play. Um, But it's just allowing them. And then in that moment of observation, looking at your child's affect, Mm -hmm. right? Listening to the gales of giggles, Mm -hmm. right? And realizing that your child has a different moment than you had. And feeling this is worth it. It's so worth yeah. it. Yeah. But it's risk. And but yeah. my daughter always said it and then she said that she learned it from me, without risk there is no reward. Mm-hmm. So take those risks and just trust that when that moment when this paint goes flying, that you're gonna set that boundary. The mm-hmm. paint needs to stay on the table. Let's try it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what about kids who love play so much that Parents are feeling like, I need a break. My child wants to play with me all the time. And we know there's benefit in solo play. Um, And then, you know, the flip side of this is, of course, kids who only like to play solo and parents are worried and want to bring them out of their shell. But um, let's talk for a minute about tips for that child that is, um, you know, very what parents often will label as needy towards the parent Mm -hmm. of I need the attention. Mm -hmm. I need Mm -hmm. you all the time. Um, and teaching kids to play on their own and the value of that. Yeah, and I got to say, of all the questions that you sent me, this is my favorite question. <laughs> and I probably thought the deepest about this okay. one because I think it's really important. And I think that those of us that uh, have infants, it starts with infancy, right? It starts young, and it starts once again with what we've— this is such a great question because it ties together yeah. so much of what we talked about. It is trusting that children are going to be able— to explore the world on their own, trusting that they're going to have the experience they need in the moment, and it's the experience they develop themselves that's the richness rather than me putting the experience in front of them. So starting young with that idea that I'm not going to take over play, how can I sustain play, not interrupt play? The second piece is the kinds of toys that you give to your child. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, Clearly, listeners know I'm not a huge fan of things that light up and make noises. It's making sure that you have open-ended materials where kids are able to enjoy them for long, expansive periods of time, that because you've been that parent that has sat back and you enter play when the child invites you to do so, um, and it, it's often when they give you a look or they, like kids, when I go into classrooms, as soon as I've been there once, as soon as I go, can you come play with me? Because they know that play with me means that I'm going to sit back and let them take the lead. And I'll say things like, so what's my job right now? Mm-hmm. Who do you want me to be? How do you want this to go? And those were preschool kids that have language skills. But it is having the types of toys, like beautiful open-ended materials, like magnetiles, one of my favorite, favorite, right? Um, having like pulling out dress-up stuff. Um, You know, once again, some of those open-ended, oh, I love the story about your boys playing Mm -hmm. Amazon delivery. There's nothing like a cardboard box, (laughs) 
right? And so also stop playing for them, playing with them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we do that a lot. And I'm a big fan of a woman named Magda Gerber, and she always has talked to us about how do we socialize kids and become part of their play and we become part of it by not taking over. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other things is that we got to take play seriously. And I think if we set kids up and realize that play is the work of children, it is their serious moment for learning. Um, and, you know, Mr. Rogers from back in the day talked about the power of kids setting up play themselves. Kids are going to want us to be with them if the only way they know how to play is that we have to play that it's a two-player game. Mm -hmm. But if we've set it up so they learn that it can be a one-player game and that I'm there to expand and build on the beautiful Mm -hmm. moment you've created, then we independently set them up for success Mm -hmm. for those moments when we have those solitary play. And I guess the other piece is that it's really important that when we have those moments, we connect with kids. We all have this emotional fuel tank. And we got to figure out some kids, it's the size of a Fiat. Other kids, it's the size of a Hummer. (laughs) If we realize that we have to look at every moment so that that moment counts. And so if we think about when we're doing caretaking kinds of duties, if we are uh, changing a baby's diaper, and if we are playing a game like an I Love You ritual, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, then we're filling up that emotional fuel tank. If at meals, it's fun and we laugh they're filling up that emotional fuel tank. They're getting so much of us and other times at those moments for solitary play. And so that we can have that moment to (gasps) take Mm -hmm. that breath. They happen Mm -hmm. because we've set them up to believe that they can handle those moments. So what if a parent is listening to this and they're thinking, oops, I have Mm -hmm. been a little too involved, I think, in my child's play. Maybe I've directed a little too much and my child's getting closer to, you know, four or five. And I, I see them seeking me out for ideas when I want them to generate ideas. Mm -hmm. What are some ways a parent can, can help scaffold this a little more in a older preschooler, um, doing exactly what you've just said, but a little bit older. First of all, you're going to offer materials. Mm -hmm. And so I think too, just like thinking about what kinds of the holidays are coming, what kinds of things I'm going to purchase for my child. Mm -hmm. So um, open-ended kinds of materials, having them just mess around with them, play with them, explore with them, instead of as they're building, even kind of physically moving away a little bit. Mm -hmm. But here's the big, big trick. What a lot of parents have done, and you have to always offer yourself grace. Mm-hmm. You know, Maya D'Angelo said that when we know better, we do better. And so it's, you know, understanding that you're going to have those times when we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but making sure that when you have those moments with your kids, that you're off your technology. Yeah. Right? I see so many times, like, parents that are only, like, half absorbed in that moment. So part of the reason that kids don't know how to scaffold their own learning is because they've never been given a chance to do that. And so a lot of times with, uh, you know, like something like Mobilo or Magnet Titles, they come with these pictures, right, that show what they can look like. Mm -hmm. And so we'll say to kids, can you build this? Having them understand that they can't build that product without exploring the process. Mm -hmm. And so as they're exploring, giving words and language to the experience and talking about, oh, you made a cube. In this, there looks like there was a cube. Or even taking away the product first so they can have that exploration. Mm-hmm. Does that get to your yeah, question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just really, once again, 
and 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 then noticing and describing the child's success when they are able to play mm-hmm. alone. Look at you. You played this much time, and mm-hmm. I'm holding out my hands, which mm-hmm. is maybe for about five minutes. Yeah. Last time I went to go and check on the oven, you were only you came looking for me with two minutes, mm-hmm. and now you're five minutes. You're able to play by yourself, and let's look at what you did, mm-hmm. and talk about what they did, and celebrate what they did, rather than saying that's nice. Yeah. Good for you. Describing the success that the child experienced, yeah. and I'll also add that. When I work with parents on trying to kind of revise some of the messages they say during play, it's kind of a verbal sit on your hands, which is asking children, oh, what's your plan with that? Mm -hmm. When you have a plan in your head, like you want to build it like it's on the box because that's what your mind goes to. I think of like Legos and other things that have, like you said, a picture of the thing that needs to be built. Mm -hmm. You know, Legos in my playroom are, you know, just all mixed up and dumped together. And I'm sure they made like five different structures back in the day, but um, it's way, way far past that uh, plan at any moment. And so when just playing Legos with a young child, um, it all of our brains are different and go in different directions. So I just love to ask a child when you're observing and doing that play-by-play of, of, oh, I, you know, I'm curious why you put that there. What's your plan with that? They usually have a plan mm-hmm. and they can tell you. They And I love that. Yeah. And then you can go back because sometimes their plans change. Mm-hmm. And isn't it so much fun to say, oh, when, oh, it looks a little different than what we talked about. Yeah. Tell me about that. And it's really excited to hear their descriptive language mm-hmm. and the way that they think mm-hmm. and that way that they give themselves permission to switch gears when the world feels like it's time to do that. Mm-hmm. So what do you want all parents of young children to know about play? Have fun with it, mm-hmm. right? Let go of preconceived notions. Um, take it for what it is. Sit back and watch. Just figure out your kid's interests and build on those interests. If your kid is an outdoor kid, then take the play outside. And don't be afraid to take that messy play outside, mm-hmm. especially if you're worried that it's going to get on the carpet, Right. Think about taking what your kids love and creating those moments. And, and as I mentioned, it's I see this a lot with parents. It is what being present, right? Letting go, showing up, being present, letting go of technology. You know, like that text message can wait. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have to set a timer for you so that in that moment – I am just, it's about me and you, our relationship, and how we can learn about one another and create those bonds and that relationship during these moments. And I guess the last thing, and Dave Willis says this, and I love this quote, there are no perfect parents and there's no perfect children, but there are always perfect moments. So savor those moments in playful ways with your kids. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I loved it. It was so much fun. Yes. Thanks for including me. Of course. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Raising Young Children in Wake County, brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation, which you can find at projectenlightenmentfoundation.org. We would love for you to subscribe to this show and share it with your friends and fellow parents. We're all in this together, and we hope we can make a difference in the lives of parents and children. Thanks to KNL Gates, a global law firm with offices in Raleigh and RTP, for their generous contribution to make this podcast happen. Thank you to our sponsors, the Empire Gives Back Foundation and Empire Eats, which includes the downtown Raleigh restaurants City 
Gravy, Raleigh Times, Mecca, and The Pit Authentic Barbecue, bringing great food to the community as well as supporting local causes, especially those that touch the lives of children. Thanks to BHDP, an award-winning international architectural firm, which is recognized for intelligent, innovative, and inspiring design solutions in architecture, planning, and interior design. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we'll see you again soon on Raising Young Children in Wake County.